Let's continue to worship as we look at God's word together this morning. Our text for the sermon will be Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. And if you use the Bible in the rack in front of you, it's page 1009. Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 6. Let's stand as we read God's word together this morning. Hebrews 13, 1 through 6. This is God's word. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor by all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Our Father, as we come this morning to look at your word, we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would be working in each heart. We pray that you'd be working through Mark and that we would experience you through your word this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, With towers that were extending 746 feet above the water, the Golden Gate Bridge, when it was constructed, was the tallest bridge in the world. And so you can imagine what it was like for the workers who worked on that bridge being at such heights. Uh, The danger of death was imminent. And so they tended to work a little bit more cautiously, which is another way of saying more slowly. And you can, uh, you can understand that. But, but you know, as they say, time is money and the construction delays were running up the cost of this project. And it was the great depression. And so that was a great concern. Robert Strauss was the chief engineer on the project. He had a deep concern about the safety of his workers. He also had a concern about cost, and he came up with the ingenious idea of putting like a circus net under the, um, under the bridge. And that way, if anyone fell, they would fall into the circus net. It turned out that 19 men joined what they called the Halfway to Hell Club. Uh, they, uh, they fell and were rescued by that net, uh, but their lives were saved. And so it saved 19 lives during the project. Not only did it save 19 lives, but seeing that the working environment was safer, the workers were able to move with more freedom, uh, more boldness, more confidence, and the work sped up by as much as 25%. Uh, ended up that the project came in under budget, government project under budget, right? An amazing thing, all because the workers had this sense of safety. And, and we understand that. You know, when you feel secure, when you feel safe, uh, when you're free of fear, you, you, move, you move with more confidence, you move with more joy, you're able to do what you want to do. Fear is a thief. Fear is a robber. It, it robs us of joy. It robs us of, the, uh, of being able to do what we want to do. It, it, it's, it steals from you. It steals your freedom. And it causes you to cling to things Uh, that you would not otherwise cling to rather than holding them open-handedly and joyfully. Jesus said about the thief, he says, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy, but I have come that they might find life and have it abundantly. I believe most people, including many 
in churches today are not experiencing the abundant life, not because they don't have enough stuff. We've got an abundance of stuff. That's not the problem. But they're not experiencing the abundant life because we are living in fear rather than in freedom. In this passage this morning and during this Advent season, we're celebrating what it means that Jesus is our Emmanuel, God with us. And in Hebrews 13, the writer of Hebrews tells us that knowing that God is with us liberates us to live a life of freedom, freedom from fear. And here we see that there's actually a direct correlation between living in fear and loving money that the two things go together, that loving money leads to fear, that knowing God is Emmanuel leads to freedom. So let's look a little bit more about money. First of all, about the danger of money, the danger of money. Now, in verse five, we're told, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Now, this is not because money is evil. Money is not evil. Money is a tool, and it can be used for great, great good. Many of you use your money for great good. Money can be used for evil. But the thing about money is money is power. It is a power tool. And all power tools have this in common. They can do good, they can do evil, but they also can hurt the one who's wielding the power. Think of a, think of a power saw. I have a friend who is a master woodworker. He was highly skilled at woodworking, and he was woodworking on a project in his garage, and he lost a digit. Now, that doesn't mean that power saws are bad. It doesn't mean they're necessarily good. It means they're powerful. And, and because of that, they have power to do harm even to the one wielding the power. And, uh, and so we, we see that with, with money. Uh, the Bible warns us about money because money is a form of power. So in Proverbs, Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, uh, the writer says this, says, give me neither poverty nor riches, feed me with food that, I, that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? What the Proverbs is saying is, is that, that if we have so much stuff, our tendency is to trust in money and to think we don't need God. So for example, think of the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, I've got my daily bread. I've got my weekly bread in my freezer right now, right? We've got food. And so it's it's easy to think we can go through life without God, that we don't need God. And there are other proverbs to give other warnings about wealth. Wealth is dangerous. Numerous studies have shown that having riches can actually be corrosive to your soul. These are all true studies they've done on, on people. For example, being rich, rich people compared to the general public are more likely to shoplift. Isn't that crazy? The people have the most money are more likely to shoplift. They're more likely to cheat. They're more likely to be adulterers. They're more likely to drink excessively. They're even more likely to take candy from a baby. You know, and if somebody steals candy from a baby, look for the rich guy, right? Uh, people who drive uh, expensive cars are more likely to run stop signs and to cut off other motorists, right? It's not the little, little uh, you know, Honda Civic that cuts you off. It's the nicer car, typically. And, and uh, rich people give proportionally less money to charity than the general public. They have more, but yet they give proportionally less. Uh, they have less compassion and empathy. And get this, among, at least among stockbrokers, Rich, rich stockbrokers are more competitive, impulsive, and reckless than medically diagnosed psychopaths. So, so if you, you have a friend who's a, uh, a successful stockbroker, watch out. That's all we have to say. Um, 
Now, the point is not, the point is not that, uh, that wealth is intrinsically everywhere evil. It is not. And we're thankful for the way God blesses many with wealth. It is a good, good gift. But at the same time, you must respect it. It is dangerous. It's kind of like the mountains. The mountains are beautiful. And, and, and you can enjoy them. But if you go into the mountains thinking they are safe, you are in danger. And money is the same thing. It, it is, as long as it's held in its proper respect, uh, we must eye it with a, a sense of caution. Not only is money dangerous, but money is also a liar. It makes promises that it can't keep. So look at the false promises of money. The false promises of money. Now, Hebrews does not warn us against money per se. It warns us against being money lovers. And, and by the way, being a money lover is not something uh, just for the rich. It is for rich, poor, middle class alike. And it is because we look at money as being that which can save us, that can provide for us the security and the happiness and the pleasure that we want. Uh, that's what it means to be a money lover. A money lover is when you look to money to provide for you that which only God can provide. And so in Colossians, when Paul talks about covetousness, he says that covetousness is idolatry. It, it is actually worshiping a false god. Because when you're coveting, when you're not content with what you have, is what Hebrews says here, when you're not content with what you have, what you're saying is that I need this for my security, I need this for my happiness, I need this for my pleasure. It, it's, it's, it's idolatry because it's a sign uh, that you're trusting in money to give you something that only God can give. Now, it's understandable why we put our trust in money. It's understandable why we love money. Uh, it, it, because money does provide us with some security and some enjoyment. I mean, you need a place to live. How do you get that? Money. You need clothes, right? Where do you get those? Money. You need food. Where do you get that? Money. And you're going to need that one day when you retire. So what do you need? Money, right? You never thought. The pastor would say, shout money in church. But... Uh, at least in an evangelical, conservative, Bible-believing church. Um, <laughs> that was bad. Okay. Uh, but, but we do see that we depend on money. And then money also provides us with, with pleasure. It, it provides us with things that are just sheer fun. I mean, I mean, a good meal, just out for a good meal. You know, that, that's a wonderful thing, a nice vacation. And isn't it nice if you have the money to get a new car and you get into your car and you sit down and you turn on those heated seats and you connect your iPhone through your Bluetooth and you roll around in that and you have your rear view. I mean, that's nice. That is all, those, all of those things are enjoyable. And so no wonder we're money lovers. Money uh, promises to provide us with security. It promises to provide us with uh, things that we des desire. And to some degree, it actually delivers on those promises. It actually comes through. It, it, it helps. But money is a lot like the Wizard of Oz. It's a little man sitting behind the curtain. And if you pull back the curtain and you see the truth about money, you see that it's not so powerful after all. You know, we think, if I only had enough money, I would be secure. I, I would not worry if I had enough money for, uh, to pay my bills, I, I wouldn't worry about paying my bills. If I had enough money for my kids' college education, my kids' weddings, my, my retirement, if I just had enough money to cover those things, I wouldn't worry. But if you had enough money for all those things, you still have a worry. What do you worry about? 
Your money. You worry about your money. What's going to happen to my money? Here's the irony about money. We look to money to provide us for security, and yet money itself is very insecure. In order for money to be able to be, make you secure, you have to secure it. Uh, and, and so what we see is that the money uh, is always something you end up worrying about. In fact, the more stuff you have, the more worries you have. In Ecclesiastes 5.12, the preacher said this, Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Now, the reason the rich can't sleep is not because they eat so much rich food, they have indigestion. That's not the point there in Ecclesiastes. The point is that the laborer has nothing to lose. The rich man always has something to lose. You know, when I was uh, in my early 20s, everything I owned fit in the back of my Honda. Literally, everything I owned in my Honda. And so if I lost everything, I didn't lose much. You know, my bank account somewhere above zero in that neighborhood. And so losing everything, I mean, it was not, I mean, it would have been a big loss to me, but still not a huge loss. But, you know, later on now you've got house, you've got cars, you've got, you know, you've got things, and now you have things that you can lose, things that you have to worry about. And so money brings with it worries. What if the stock market crashes? You know it's going to. It did before, right? Uh, you know, so you go, oh my goodness, when's that going to happen, right? Uh, what if the housing market implodes? That would never happen, right? Uh, you, know, uh, you know, what if uh, uh, the economy falls apart? It's been good for a long time. Aren't you just waiting for that next shoe to drop, right? Uh, everything that you have that's about money is susceptible to loss. And so we look to money for security, but in order for money to save you, you have to save it. Now, here's the point. If you have to be your God's savior, you have the wrong God, if you have to save your God, you have the wrong God. And that's the, the point about loving money. It, it, is, a, it is a poor savior. Uh, it is a poor savior. Not only is money a poor savior, but the dirty little secret about money, and it's an open secret, we all know this, is it doesn't actually deliver on all the pleasure that it promises to provide. Money can provide moments of pleasure, and we enjoy those things, and it's, and it's delight that we get to enjoy those things, but it still cannot buy happiness. David Siegel uh, has been dubbed as the timeshare king. He, uh, he, he made just millions in the timeshare business, and he said this about money. He says, money doesn't make you happy. It makes you unhappy in a better part of town, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and that is true. Uh, if you're looking for money to provide you with happiness, it won't. And so the point is that coveting is not just wrong. It is wrong because you're looking to money to be your God, to be that which saves you, to provide you security and happiness. But it's also foolish. It, it, it doesn't make sense. And, and here's the point. We all know this. I mean, most of us are Americans, and to be an American means we are consumers. We have consumed. We spent our life consuming. We bought stuff. Remember what you bought last year at Christmas? No, I don't. And so, and so you realize that it all goes away, and so we consume when we buy and we get stuff, and yet we still feel empty. But, so, but we know that. I mean, everybody here knows that, but we're like addicts. We keep going back to the same thing, back to the same drug, the same drink, hoping it will make us feel better. All the while, we know it's killing us, but we don't know how to stop because we don't know where else to go. 
Where do we go to find security if it's not here? Where do we go to find happiness? And so we keep going back to the same thing and always are needing more and more and more. The only way to stop loving money is to find our security and our joy in something permanent, in something that lasts, and that's in Emmanuel and God with us. So let's look at the true security of Emmanuel. Now, fortunately, the Bible doesn't just say, stop it, stop it, get over it, don't be covetous. It doesn't say that. It says, it warns against money loving, but then God tells us why we should not be money lovers. He gives us something more. Uh, you know, our longing for money and our longing for security is uh, not our longing for money, but our longing for security and our longing for fulfillment is actually a God-given drive. Uh, Jamie Smith, in his uh, wonderful book on St. Augustine, said this about, about just contentment. He said, it's not just that I'm hooked and I need a fixed. Rather, we must recognize that the insatiability of my hunger isn't a bug, but a feature. A signal that I long for something infinite. Wanting more isn't the problem. It's where I keep looking for it. When he says that, 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 that craving, that longing, it's not a bug, it's a feature. It is, he's saying that, that God made you for more. God made you for more. That, so longing for more is not the problem. The problem is we're looking to find that satisfaction, to fill that void in the wrong place. And, and the, so our problem is where we keep looking to be filled. And so look again at verse 5. He says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have for, by the way, that's the key word, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? So this call that God has to contentment, being content with what you have, is, is not a call to settle for less. It's not a, a passive acceptance of a, an unfulfilled and insecure life. Rather, it's a plea to look for joy and security in the only place where we can find it. God is calling us to live by faith, to live by faith, to live in confidence in him. Our faith is that the God who loves us is the God who will provide for us. And he'll provide for us in a way that money can't, that money can't. And all of this hinges on the Emmanuel promise. As he says here, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It is God's presence that frees us from fear and liberates us from being, uh, finding our security in money. Here's the point. It, it, is, it is a parenting principle, actually. It says the more you feel secure in the Father's love and care, the more free you will be. The more free you will be. And that's true of, of any child. But it's true for us as children of God. The more free we will be, it happens when we feel secure in the Father's love and care for us. That's simply basic parenting. In 1968, Dr. Mary Ainsworth conducted a study of uh, parents and, uh, and their infants, of moms particularly and their infants. So the first thing they did is they went into the homes and they observed how the mothers interacted with their children. With their, with their infants, one year or less. And then they took the, the mother and the child and they put them in what she called a strange situation. And they put the mother and the child in a room, a room where they neither had ever been, 
And then strangers would come into the room and leave, and the mother would come into the room and leave. And here's what they found out. For those children who had very responsive mothers, mothers who uh, were very responsive in the home, who, who smiled back to their children's smiles, who were very interacted, they found that those children, uh, those mothers, when the mother was in the room, would explore the room freely, would move about very securely, very freely. And when a stranger would come in, that child would, inter- uh, would interact with a stranger in, a, in a, just a very joyful way. And when the mother left the room, then all of a sudden that child would start crying and would not explore the room at all. When the mother came back, all of a sudden the child feels free again, explores the room, interacts with strangers, and so on. Now, with the children who were raised in homes where the mother was not very responsive, the mother who did not return smiles, the mother who did not uh, respond to cries, and so on, they found that when the mother and child were in the room, the child did not explore the room, that when the strangers came in, the, the child did not interact with strangers. In fact, the child did not interact much with the mother. The child did not move around much at all, did not interact with the mother, did not interact with strangers, did not explore the room. When the mother left, nothing changed. When the mother came back, nothing changed. And so what they found is that when children feel that they are loved by their mother, they feel more free more secure. In fact, uh, studies go on that found that uh, as these children uh, grew up, uh, they would uh, uh, grow up to be more confident, more successful in school, more successful in work, and, uh, and, and so on, that it had a, a lifelong impact. The same is true for us as children of God. If you want to live with freedom, if you want to live with joy, then you have to live with a sense that God is with you, that when God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, he is telling us the truth. Without God, we're like orphans in the world. And because we're like orphans in the world, we are insecure. Uh, The difference, though, is the reason we are orphans in the world is not because God has abandoned us, but because we abandoned him. We did not want God telling us what to do. Rather than living by his laws, we thought we could decide right and wrong for ourselves. That's what sin is. Sin is when we say, God, it's not just sin, it's not just when you do something horrible. Sin is when you're saying, God, you're not the boss of me. I'm going to decide what's right and wrong for myself. So if I agree with you, I'll obey those rules. And if I don't agree, I won't obey those rules. That's what sin is. Sin is rejecting God's authority over you. But when we reject God's authority over us, we're also rejecting him not only as king, we're rejecting him as father. And by rejecting God as father, we found ourselves alienated and estranged from God. And without a father to protect us and provide for us, we now live in a world full of insecurity. We, and, and because we're insecure, we're looking, we're looking for something to provide us with that anchoring, that sense of security. And since we're not looking to God, we look to money. We've replaced God with money, and money betrays us because it can't give us the security that we crave. But that's why Jesus came. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He comes as the the older brother inviting the prodigal sons to return home. We no longer have to live as orphans. We can live as sons and daughters of the king. To do so, we have to uh, turn away from our stubborn independence. That's what the Bible means by repentance. By repentance means I'm turning away from thinking that I'm going to be the boss. I'm coming back home and I'm saying, Father, you know what's best. And I'm submitting to him as a loving father who I know cares for me. 
And so we return in repentance. We turn away from the idea that we can make our own rules, that we can live without God. We come to him in faith, believing that Jesus, through his life and his death and his resurrection, has cleared the path for us to return home. And it's to those who turn to Jesus in faith, who trust that Jesus paid the penalty for our rebellion and won the right for us to return home, it's to those whom God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. you. You will always be safe with me. See, life is scary. Life is scary. But now we have the safety net of God's love. And that's what liberates us to live in freedom. Well, what does this mean and what does this look like? What does this look like? So let's talk about how to live free. Because right now you can say, well, I, I, I agree with that. Okay, don't be a lover of money. Fine, I don't. But what does it look like? Well, keeping your life free from the love of money is not an abstract idea. It's actually very concrete. It means changing the way that you relate to money. See, money is an idol that will not go away quietly. It's, you, know, you can't just break up with her and think she's going to go away. She stays there. And so, so instead, you must work to break its hold on you. That means you must put yourself in a place where you're trusting God rather than money. Interestingly, in the Bible, repeatedly we are told, do not put God to the test. Do not put God to the test. That command is repeated in various ways throughout Scripture, with one exception. In one place, God says, put me to the test. Put me to the test. And it's in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, and God says this in Malachi. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you blessings until there is no more need. See, God had told his people, I want you to live dependent on me. And so part of that means I want you to tithe. I want you to give away uh, 10% of your total income to the Lord. And so as, as the Israelites were commanded to do this, by the way, they're commanded to give many other things as well. Their total giving probably totaled somewhere around 30%. But here God is talking about the tithe. And he says, he says they're told to tithe. But the people didn't tithe. And you know why they didn't tithe? They said, well, I don't have enough money to tithe. I can't afford to tithe. And, and so if I give away 10%, I'm not going to have enough. And so, so they, didn't, they didn't tithe. And God says to them, in effect, he says, don't you know that I'm your father? Don't you believe that I'm going to care for you? Haven't I promised to care for you? I tell you what, put me to the test. Give away your tithe. Give away 10% of, of this to the Lord's work. Give generously, and you will see that I will provide for you. See, God is saying the only way you're going to find out if you can trust me is if you actually give away your money so that you have to trust me and see if I provide. As long as you're trusting in your money, you'll never be able to put your trust in me. Jesus put it this way. You cannot worship God and money at the same time. You've got to decide which one you're going to put your trust in. And so God is saying that in, in, to, to the people of Malachi. He says, if you want to find out if I'm trustworthy, if you really want to find out if I can provide for your security and your happiness, then you have to live faithfully to me. You, you, have, to, you have to live generously. Now, for many, many people, they are not able to trust God 
simply because they've never tried. They've never let go of their security and money. They've never given it away in generous proportions. They've never attempted to lower their lifestyle in order to be more generous. And as a result, they missed out on God's provision. And because they missed out on God's provision, they've drawn the false conclusion that God cannot be trusted. And as a result of believing that God cannot be trusted, they're living their lives full of fear, afraid to move, afraid to act, afraid to live life to the full, all because they have not trusted God with their money. Do you want to live free from fear? Do you want to live knowing that you are secure? Then put your faith in God rather than the God of money. Put your faith in the God who can save you rather than the God who needs you to save it. And believe God's promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Our Lord, we do thank you that you are a God who provides generously for your people. But Lord, we confess that we're afraid. We're afraid to lower our lifestyles. We're afraid to, to live off of anything less than the maximum we can, we can spend. In fact, some of us have taken it to such degree that we spend more than we even have. And so, Lord, we pray, forgive us for thinking that we would find security or joy in these things. And help us, Lord, to, to be free, to know that we can trust you. Help us to live faithfully with our money, that we would be generous, and therefore that we would learn that you do provide. You may not give us all the material things that, that we think we need, but you certainly can provide us all the joy that we could ever desire. And so, Lord, we pray, uh, help us to live by faith, seeing that you have proven your love for us through the death of Christ and the resurrection, even as we celebrate his coming, his birth, this Christmas season. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.